1: The following podcast
2: is a member of the Great Big Owl family.
1: This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language which will frequently mean sexual swear words.
0: What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music.
2: It's still Thursday night, it's still Top of the Pops, it's still December the 17th, 1987, I'm still Al Needham, there's still Sarah B and David Stubbs, and this is still chart Music. Hey up, you pop-crazed youngsters, we are now into the final part, the final furlong, if you will, of this particular episode of Top of the Pops, and I've got to say, me dogs, it's picked up a bit, hasn't it?
3: It has a bit, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you yeah, know, yeah. yeah
3: Non-committal noises, isn't it? Yeah. it?
2: Couldn't really pick down anymore, could it? <laughs> it certainly couldn't. <laughs> let us cut the chit and the chat and let us plunge headlong into the final part of this episode. Take it away, Pop World of 1987. Here's the highest new entry on the chart this week at number 19 in our LA studio on top of the pop's Belinda Carlisle. Davis just about remembers that the next act is coming at us all the way from a studio in Los Angeles. It's Heaven is a Place on Earth by Belinda Carlisle. Born in Los Angeles in 1958, Belinda Carlisle began her musical career in 1977 as a drummer with the LA punk band Germs under the name of Dottie Danger although she was forced to leave the group without ever playing live with them after a bout of glandular fever. In 1978, she helped to form the Go-Go's, and by 1980, they supported Madness and The Specials on their US tours, which helped them land a deal with stiff records in the UK. But while their debut LP Beauty and the Beat got to number one for six weeks in the US album charts in 1981, they got nowhere near the UK top 40 with their only placing on their first go around being Our Lips Are Sealed, which got to number 47 in June of 1982. When the band split up in 1985, Carlyle went solo and had immediate success in the USA, but it wouldn't be until this single came out that she made a dent on the UK chart. This is a lead-off single from her new LP, Heaven on Earth, and it soared 24 places this week from number 43 to number 19, and we're being treated to a recording of her performance on Top of the Pops USA. An hour-long show which has been running on CBS on Friday nights for the past two months, features performances from their studio and the BBC One, and is co-hosted by Nia Peoples, a former cast member of Fame who appeared in the video for Raspberry Beret, and Gary Davis. Who didn't? We need to talk a bit about Top of the Pops USA, Don't Win Me Ducks, because there's an episode or two floating about on the internet and it's, it's massively disconcerting, isn't it? Yeah, it's all
1: wrong. It's all wrong.
2: Mm. I mean, you get the wizard intro and you know, the set's sort of similar, but it's all in NTSC, so you've got that sheen on it. Mm. There's an actual young woman presenting. Yeah. Uh, The the dancers are aerobicised to death and mm. everything's just massively super professional. And then it wangs back to London and there's Gary Davis with some gimpy British youths yeah. in <laughs> shitty yeah. suits and manky ties. I think from the perspective of a podcast like
1: this, there's, yeah, there's, there's too little to kind of... Get your teeth sunk into. Really, it's a bit sort of slick, and uh, yeah, yeah, and it's just uh, yeah. They've managed to kind of airbrush and deodorize it, and plane away all the kind of sort of slightly grotesque idiosyncrasies of uh, the Top of the Pops we know and love.
2: Yeah, Gary Davis was the regular presenter on the Top of the Pops USA. <laughs> oh, that must have caused ructions at Radio One. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: But I mean, who else are they going to have? I can't see Mike Smith doing this. It's such a fun. Definitely can't see Simon Bates doing it. Can you imagine American home being fucking assailed by the sight of Simon Bates?
3: Yeah, Yeah, it's like they they pick the most presentable child to kind of shove out to the front when the important people (laughs) turn up, you know? Yes. But I mean, I think Gary Davis uh, was like, oh, brilliant. An American career beckons and then it didn't.
1: No. Poor Gary.
3: It's a bit of a I shame. Know,
1: isn't it? Maybe Gary Davis could have possibly carried it off because there's a certain sort of nondescriptness about him. But, you know, Batesy, or people like that. I mean, it's like Alan Partridge making it in America. I mean, they'd be too far mm. away. The idea of being thousands of miles away from the nearest motorway service station, I just think they'd find the whole atmosphere alienating. They'd yeah. feel lost in it. They'd they'd crave, you know, Twixes and Marmites and things like that. Mm. And, uh,
3: the thing is, like, their shit just wouldn't wash in America, would it? This kind of... The, the no. sort of bumbling, foffling, oily British bollocks just would not wash there. It's like, what are you, what are you guys? What are you guys doing? No. Like, you, yeah. you realize you realize we're on television right now. And, uh... You realize this, those cameras are are on. <laughs> <Yes. Can> you... <laughs> I like it. I, I like this kind of. It is weird. I mean, there is a sort of uncanny valley vibe about it, where it's like, oh my god, it's like looking into a parallel yes. universe where Top of the Pops isn't yes. the kind of. The kind of adorable mm. shambles that we all know and love, but I, I it's kind of a breath of fresh air for me because you know it's just the oh, the sort of British shambling oh, after a while, I just go, for fuck's sake, I just need a mm. dose of cold, hard professionalism, you know it's like it's I mean Britishness mm. is so exhausting, yeah, I mean, and I say that as a as a British person, and of course it, Americanness is exhausting as well, but it's like I have you know countrymen yeah. of, of of each place. you know i i I need to ricochet between the two really. In my soul.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that there is, a, like like with the British one, you know, there's all, it's kind of bristling and snarling with subtext. I mean, you know, just <laughs> these kind of very snatched in between songs. There's so much you can sense. Whereas I think in America, you, you dick Cavett and people like that, there's no subtext at all. That is just Mm-mm. clamped firmly, um, you know, with kind a of sort of Richter smile and a kind of Richter's presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's the big, big difference. I'm sure, a la Lally, Larry Sanders, there's all kind of shit going on behind the scenes, but behind the scenes mm-hmm. it stays.
2: Mm -hmm. Obviously, for Top of the Pops, this is win, 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 isn't it? Because it's a great opportunity for them to get footage of American acts. Mm. And uh, for for British acts, you know, there's a very good chance that they'd suddenly be on a big American network uh, on a Friday night. Mm. But sadly, it only lasted 26 episodes due to poor ratings. Yeah. Oh, those Americans. I mean, if if they'd have done this in the early 80s, probably would have taken off you know giving the americans a chance to see culture club and duran duran and all that kind of stuff all the stuff they liked mm. but you know by 1987 what what can we offer them
1: yeah and in any case, there's always that sort of deep resentment of uh, British invasions. It's like that moment mm. in Pulp Fiction where he sort of says to the guy, hey, fucker, seagulls, you know. And there's like a sort of deep mm. cultural hatred ventilated there for British invasions yeah. and whenever we go over there and try and show them how it's done. And, uh, yeah. yeah, so I think there's always that kind of ingrained resentment. It's funny that little weird little catch when, you know, he says, "And you know. In our LA studio, it's, it's like has he temporarily forgotten yeah. the, the location, the city? You know, thinks it might be. I, of,
2: of all people, Gary Davis forgetting that because you know be yeah you know be fucking wanging that round yeah. um, in the canteen. Oh yeah, you know uh, my LA studio. Yeah, you know is it... where, where I present yeah. my show, yeah. Top of the Pops USA. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Oh, imagine Imagine if Savile was still around and he presented it. Fucking mm. hell.
1: No, but there is a, there, there a certain, you know, you know, something that truly reminds you that there is something that is so idiosyncratically British that it, 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 it mm. evaporates, you know, when it kind of leaves the shores of the UK.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and when we cut to the audience in America, you know, there's, there's definitely no suits in evidence, but no. they're not wearing much of anything either, really, are they? There's... Yeah. There's no sense that we're missing out on no, anything.
1: No, no, I mean, this is it. I mean, there's, you know, apart from all those sort of brilliant R&B that's going on and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, you know, producing mm. brilliant singles every half an hour, yeah. It, it's it's yeah. a slightly down time.
2: And, of course, the, uh, I think the worst thing that came over this crossover period was uh, we got to see Kiss perform Crazy Nights, mm-hmm. which is, no word of a lie, the worst performance ever on top of the yep. Pops. They're fucking shit.
1: Yeah. And also, I think from a British point of view, the idea that it's just coming from LA, it's just like, well, come on, you know, get on a plane, come over here, you know. So it's like, you're too grand for Mm. us.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, And then they would have been greeted by the, huh, what are you doing here then? Yeah, exactly. You've got a whole, you've got a massive country over there. What, you're going to come over here and (laughs) steal the towels out of our hotels, are you, you Uh, fuckers? We used to own you.
2: Yeah. They can't win. But this song, though. Uh, I mean, the Go-Go's were massive in America in the early 80s, and uh, over there she accounted a little bit of a backlash for selling out and being all pop, Mm. Uh, but this is pretty much her coming out party in the UK, isn't it? We know know no other Belinda Carlisle but this, Mm. Mm. pretty much. I mean, I know that if if Pricey were on, I think he would
1: probably mount some sort of stout and sterling defence for this, but... Mm. um, I don't know, I, I, I can't muster the sort of sense of irony or kitsch or not even those things, whatever, because he wouldn't do it in that spirit Ooh. Um I mean, you know, and she, she seems she seems a likable old cove as um, Belinda Carlisle, but um, <laughs> but it's, it's 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 just relentlessly atrocious, and it's not even like it's particularly her. It's not even singling out her. It's it's just. Um, I mean, this is interesting. This is about the only remotely guitar-based song we have all night, isn't it? I think. Yeah. Everything else is is nothing. so it's almost like Top of the Pops has very belatedly caught onto the concept of rockism and the guitar being on the way out, whatever in the eighties. You know, right. Just as actually, it's just about to kind of make this kind of great resurgence because it's this kind of sort of glazed poodle hairish sort of L.A. processed crap that passes for rock music, you know. That's just lots of sort of like posturing, sort of you know, like um, it's shaving cream ad rock, you know. It's it's um, and this is what it's been reduced to, and this is what in the future, this is what you
2: kitty cat. That's living! That's right, yeah. Ooh!
1: Yeah. Or was that was it Sound Shop or something like that? Wasn't some, some sort of like um record outlet, a bit like our price, and it says, Time to catch mm. all the bullets from Sound Shop. You know, they, everything's like that. <laughs> oh Yeah, yeah, do you remember that one. one? Yeah? Yeah. Oh yes. I think it was called no. Sound Shop or something like that, yeah. And it's a histrionic, squawking ballsless parody of rock
3: <laughs> yeah i'm not gonna i'm, I'm sorry my uh, i haven't warmed up otherwise i'll do the body form
2: oh yeah of course of yeah. course yeah. body form
3: um well uh continuing the fine tradition of uh, disagreeing with you on on pretty much everything mm-hmm. on this episode,
2: good. i oh. love this
3: song are you kidding it's it's oh. like it's very I, I know exactly what it i know precisely what it is it's very basic chug-a-lug anthemic pop rock that is kind of, it's, it's sort of precision tool to fit a certain dumb hole in your skull. And it's very, mm. last song of the disco, very sort of drunk. You can't really dance to it. It's like you have to be sort of drunk to feel feelings about it. Um, and it's you very, or, a or on a hen or something though, you? But it's kind of perfect in itself. It's like, it's this solid block of kind of euphoric nonsense. I love it. I mean, Orbital play it in their sets and not in a sort of ironic way because, you know, they're mm. kind of, that that is, that is not something to which they stoop. And it's fucking great, and it completely fits in the midst of all this kind of electronic um, kind of squalling craziness. Um, mm. I, it's interesting that I haven't seen evidence of this, but apparently this this song is uh, featured in uh, Black Mirror and also The Handmaid's Tale. So uh, right. I find this interesting that there's, uh, some producers have seen in it or heard in it the kind of note of dystopian kind of wrongness and it's because it's the dissonance isn't it it's because it's so dumb and happy that that's mm. why you know because that's going to sound great over images of you know mm. people being weirdly estranged from each other because of technology or whatever mm. Mm. Um, but yeah oh, there's also I really respect the fact that there's this kind of because I, I love a key change as, as regular listeners will know but this one is really rude and abrupt it's just like fuck you mm. this is the key change USA USA and uh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm okay with it every time, you know, whenever I hear this, I, I wouldn't put it on. Do you know what I mean? But there's so much no. music that I wouldn't put on. I wouldn't choose to, you know, I wouldn't reverently take down the vinyl and kind of, you know, and, and blow it off. But, um, I would, you know, if this comes on in, in, a, in a cab, I will, you know. I'll feel a surge of
1: Punch the roof in. Yeah. Which is where yeah. it will come on. Yeah, and-
3: it's fucking great. She's 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 sort of really she's such an adorable presence as well. Like when she was in the go-go she had that very mm. I love how the go gos sound exactly like their name. It's always really pleasing when somebody it's there's a sort of very all American yeah. thing but with a slight undercurrent of something a bit more spiky, you know. And she just looks very, mm. very wholesome and sweet and th- she's got that sort of Priscilla Presley thing about her. And Which apparently, according to an extremely mm. um, oleaginous Neil McCormick review from this year, she's six, 61 now and seems to just be overjoyed to be performing. She's always sort of skipping about and grinning like a little girl, which is, which is very endearing. And I think this, right. this whole performance is very, like I said, it, it's such a kind of the, the whiplash that you get. From seeing something like the Pogues, you know, and yeah. then and then this, which is so all the guitar, you know, there's there's several probably more guitarists than there are guitar parts, and they've all got the stance and all yeah. the you know, and the there's a the drummer has like three different mullets yeah. kind of stacked on top of each other like like yes. like pancakes, <laughs> and it's just like oh look the Americans have turned up, yeah, and right. I'm not saying that that's better than the Pogues, of course it isn't, but it's just there's yeah. a delight in the contrast of of how. Of of that yes. complete other end of things, you know, she's got a little black suit on with massive shoulder pads. Obviously, it's mm, nineteen eighty seven yes. and a big sort of cabbagey
2: buttonhole. So even Belinda's got a suit on as Belinda well. Belinda
3: got a suit on. She's, uh, you know, she because she's flipping her hair. She's doing the hair flip back and forth with her lovely brandy snap hair. Yeah, she's dressed like a secretary at a wedding and little and little heels. Yeah, she's got she's got a suit on. She's you know she's on brand and of course she sings like you know she she sings but like she a,
2: looks better in it than. Everyone oh yeah, else.
3: obviously, yeah, yeah. As I'm sure Neil McCormick agreed at great length, but I didn't read the whole thing because you know you know how when things fade out when you're uh, on the Telegraph and you haven't paid for it, and it's like, I'm not paying to listen to Neil McCormick ooze about Belinda Carlisle and how she doesn't look any different to how she did when she was 19, mm-hmm. you know. But yeah, I mean, she does sing. She's got that very distinctive, slightly annoying voice that she does. It's kind of like a sexy goat sitting on an old washing machine. But um, again... I'm finding that I don't know. Mm. I'm just I I give up trying to <laughs> trying to break down why it is that I'm okay with things. I just am okay. Let me live. Mm. <laughs> I think, sexy I think goats. all of those
1: observations are correct. Actually, um, it's just that when I hear it, it makes me sad and angry, of course they are. and you know I think it's shy and all that. But, uh, <laughs> but I think actually all those observations. Interesting thing about the um, suit, actually, we talked a lot about the suit, is that. We're in this kind of pre-laddism, pre-loaded era, actually, and it's women. You know, Linda Carlisle is clearly very beautiful, or whatever. But there's no sense in which you know the way that she dresses. You know, in the kind of suit, it sort of defies uh, you know objectification or whatever. I'm sure that Annie Lennox, or whatever, was doing the same sort of thing at the same time. So
2: you know, I I, I, I would at least I would at least say that. Dotty Danger's a fucking shit mm. punk name though, isn't it? That's proper <laughs> yes, Quincy, Quincy punk. punk. It's what Beryl the Peril <laughs> yeah. would have called herself one week mm, in nineteen seventy seven. Oh bless her. And her dad gives her the slipper with a safety pin through it at the end.
1: <laughs> yes. God, that was weird, isn't it? Being we the Beano and whatever and wizard and chips where little eight year old girls were given the slipper at the end. Just, mm. yeah, yeah. I've heard, Linda Carlisle isn't Australian, is she? No. 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 I've laboured for that? long sections of my life assuming that she was Australian. I think it's because she once met Andrew Muller, who wrote for Melody Maker and he's Australian.
3: What? Well, and I just, rubbed, that she you you just rubbed off,
1: yeah. on not I mean, you know, it's possible that on that basis alone I'm disqualified from expressing any kind of authority <laughs> opinion on, on the like, uh, I mean, call. But I just I don't know, I just thought she was Australian for some like,
3: reason. Have you got have you got any Australian in you? <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh.
1: Anyway, you know, obviously, I'm fully disabused of that now. But, but no, but I mean, obviously, this is—I mean, obviously, this is the LAification of rock music. It's like Sunset, yes. stripped of all of its kind of sort of raucousness and all that. Nice, Ooh. quite nice, though, wasn't it? See, what Did you have the, that one written down? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, and um, basically, already the forces were mustering um, to kind of. Rid the world of this scourge, you know, and you know the early stirrings of grunge and what have you, because you know they were really in revolt against the whole kind of poodle hair tendency of you know whether it's Bon Jovi or whatever, etc., etc. You know that's what they came to drive out.
2: Or New Order in that one picture.
1: Yes, indeed. Yeah.
2: So, the following week, Heaven is a Place on Earth jumped 11 places to number eight. And three weeks later, it deposed this week's number one, spending two weeks there before being usurped by I Think We're Alone Now by Tiffany, which was fucking weird because she looks like Belinda Carlisle's niece. (laughs) (laughs) The follow-up. I get weak. Got to number ten in March of 1988, and she'd have three more top ten hits in the nineties, and be a chart regular all the way up to 1997. I think this is the uh, this is the biggest achievement of Top of the Pops USA, isn't it? It gave us Belinda Carlisle at number one. Mm. 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 She just won't stop calling me. I said, Belinda, it's over. I said. <laughs> I wish you'd call me sometime. Tell you what we'll do right now is have a look at this week's top ten. Number ten is Jelly Bean with Elisa
1: Fiorillo and Who Found Who. Madonna goes up six to nine with A Look of Love. The Pogues and Kirsty McCall, The Great Fairy Tale of New York, up from nineteen to eight. And at seven, what do you want to make those eyes at me for? From Shaky. Mel and Kim, a rise for them to number six with their rocking Around the Christmas Tree. And to Power's former number one, China In Your Hand is this week's five. Up five to number four goes Alison Moyer with her version of Love Letters. And Michael Jackson, The Way You Make Me Feel, stands still at number three. Standing still at two, Rick Astley and When I Fall In Love.
2: So that means we have a brand new number one, and what a year it's been for this band. They were number one earlier in the year with a song called It's a Sin. And now with Always On My Mind, Chris Lowe and Neil Tennant of the Pet Shop Boys
1: are back there again at the top.
2: (laughs) Reach fantasises that Belinda Carlisle is stalking him. Blue tulip Belinda Carlisle, if you will. While Davis wishes that she or anybody else from the American Top of the Pops would just give him a call before they go into the top ten. They end up at the very top of the pile with Always On My Mind by the Pet Shop Boys. Formed in a hi fi shop in Chelsea when Neil Tennant, who was working on a sorted TV tie in box for ITV. Bought a Korg and Chris Flo, who was in a work placement with an architectural firm and had just designed a staircase for an industrial estate in Milton Keynes, said it was dead nice. The Pet Shop Boys took their title from a nickname they had given to some mutual friends who were working in a live domesticated animal emporium and apparently not from some American lads who were shoving hamsters up their ring pieces. When Tennant landed a job on Smash Hits and was required to travel to New York to interview Sting, he took the opportunity to look up the high-energy producer Bobby Orlando and convinced him to produce the duo, who then spent 1983 and 1984 working up a demo tape which contained West End Girls, which became a US club hit but was only available on import 12-inch over here. After finally getting out of their deal with Bobby O, which involved signing off a million dollars worth of future royalties, they took on Tom Watkins as their manager and signed to Parlophone. Their debut single, Opportunities, Let's Make Lots of Money, only got to number 116 in the summer of 1985. But the follow-up, a re-recording of West End Girls, got to number two for two weeks in January of 1986. And they rapidly became one of the most successful British groups of the late 80s. This is the follow-up to What Have I Done to Deserve This?, the collaboration with Dusty Springfield, which got to number two for two weeks in August of this year. In the same month, they pitched up to the Central TV studios in Nottingham to take part in Love Me Tender, a two-hour tribute to Elvis to mark the 10th anniversary of his death. And they covered this song, which was originally recorded by B.J. Thomas in 1970 and then covered by Brenda Lee and Gwen McRae in 1972 until it was claimed by Elvis later that year, who took it to number nine in the UK in January of 1973. Their performance on the show went down so well there was a clamour for its release. It was the second highest new entry last week at number four. And this week it's leapfrogged when I fall in love by Rick Astler and taken China in your hand by T'Pau down from the top spot. And here they are in the studio. Mission accomplished, Agent King Cole. <laughs> yes. Thank you for your service. That love me tender special—that was fucking weird. That was. It's
3: amazing. Mm. I I had a I had a look at a few um a few performances, including uh, Meatloaf doing Jailhouse Rock. Yeah. Fucking mm. hell! God bless Meatloaf. Honestly, because you know that he cares, he cares so much, and he gives it loads, mm. and then some more. It's just ah, oh, it's. I I once cruelly described him as Mick Jagger in a walrus, and um, <laughs> I am going to repent on that, but but not yet. No, and no, uh, why not? you know I'm going to feel really bad when he dies. I'm going to feel so yeah.
2: bad. Mm. I mean, it, it it was a some star cast uh, for for this special. I mean, the, you you had Mystery Train, Lordy Miss Claudy and Hound Dog, sung by Roger Daltrey, mm. Blue Moon of Kentucky, Good Rockin' Tonight, and Paralyzed, Dave Edmonds. Mm. One Night with You, and Big Hunk of Love, Kim Wilde. Mm. Heartbreak Hotel and Loving You by Kiki D. Mm. A Mess of the Blues, Love Letters, My Baby Left me, Elkie Brooks and All Her Looks. Mm-hmm. Suspicious Minds and Money Honey by Benny King. Mm. Hard-Headed Woman, J-Last Rock and American Trilogy by Meatloaf. And Are You Lonesome Tonight and Teddy Bear by Boy George. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of on-stage performances apart from Kim Wilde who was rolling about on a bed for one night with you. But the Pet Shop Boys, they they did a video, and it involved a lot of trains, and it involved them dressed up in a lot of leather with caps. It was like, you know, Neil and Chris of Finland, if you will. <laughs> it's a it's
3: a camp. I think it, I feel like it's a lost camp classic. This uh this entire mm. um glorious fiasco. But
1: shaky doesn't get a look in. Yeah,
3: shaky. Yeah, didn't get a look in, yeah. does he? I mean,
1: that's that's a, that's yeah. a real. Snub, isn't it? Yeah,
3: that's not that. That wouldn't have worked. How would that? How? Oh,
2: maybe Shaky turned down Elvis. You know, his Elvis should be covering me.
3: It's never been released on DVD or anything, so it's just that there's a. But nothing is on YouTube. It's been ripped off, ripped off a of VHS. Yeah, bits, which, uh, bits, and bobs. Yeah. Oh, it's 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 great. I was surprised actually at how happy yeah. it made me. Yeah.
2: Did a bit of research and. Uh, On on an Elvis forum, uh, somebody called Andy said, I remember it well. I was there. It was filmed at the Central TV (gasps) Studios Lenton Lane in Nottingham, where Bullseye was filmed, of course. Nottingham Cradle of Pop. Uh, I remember Meatloaf never finished American Trilogy. It had to be spliced. Dr. Robert from the Blow Monkeys did follow that dweem, or at least that's how he pronounced it, <laughs> and walked off to complete <laughs> silence. No surprise mm. there. Oh. Kim Wilde was amazing, oh, and I spent a little while talking to her in the corridor outside her dressing room, as the heat in the TV studio was incredible, and I had to get a drink, but oh dear. Mm. Boy, George was disgusting. Oh, yeah playing with himself on the stage before the camera rolled. Ooh. Oh, George. Oh <laughs> yeah. and boy, George, turns up. he turns up on that as Sue Pollard, doesn't he? He's yes. got these massive glasses on and some blonde wig going on. It all on. comes
1: back to Nottingham, doesn't it, somehow? Well,
2: yeah. It does. It well, does. Um, and, and also, it looked like Cole Perkins' rug had died 10 years previously as well. But, yeah, I mean, the Pet Shop Boys on that, they were just like Earth, Wind & Fire on the film version of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. They were the only yeah. ones yeah. who took an old song and dipped it in fresh new colours. I mean... As a writer at
1: the time, I, I remember I did give Pet Shop Boys quite a hard time, really, you know, mm. as I said earlier, not the young gods, etc., cetera, et cetera. But I just yes. kind of felt that they were sort of pop ironists who'd arrived a few years too late to the game. And I just found their sort of archness, you know, uh, slightly kind of grating. But now as I <clears throat> approach middle age, um, mm. I'm beginning to, um, you know, I can see, I can recognise retrospectively their merits, definitely. Mm. I mean, what you've got with, with you know, with Neil and Chris, it's not so much yin, yin and yang. I mean, a lot of these kind of duos were yin and yang, weren't they? Like in Sparks yeah. whatever, or Suicide, Soft Cell and all that. Again. And here you've just got yin and yin, haven't you? Because yeah. they're both, you know, pretty much in that kind of sort of deadpan. Uh, but, but de pandemina. Uh, and it's strange, you know, it's almost like there's something Smith's-esque about them as well, you know, mm-hmm. in the way that they kind of, you know, they're sort of, a sort of more distant delivery in the context of things like Top of the Pops. But doing it in the kind of, in the idiom of the time, in the sort of dance idiom of, of, of the era or whatever. So they're sort of dead central from that point of view. Yeah. Um, so that, that I like. At the time, I would probably have disdained it. But, um, but no, retrospectively, um, I can see it was a good thing.
2: Mm. I fucking hated this when it came mm. out because yeah. I, we were in Elvis' house, uh. and it was it was my mum and dad's song. Yeah, my dad oh, was a lorry yeah. driver right through the seventies. Yeah, uh, so I didn't see a lot of him, and he didn't see a lot of me, mum. Mm. And um, he was a really quiet bloke as well. And mm. you know, he, he it was just their song, you know. And yeah. uh, it got played at his funeral as well, along with the wonder of you. I was a bit upset about that. I think they should have knocked out the wonder of you and put in Tutti Frutti, which was my dad's favourite song ever. Mm. But mm. yeah, so when the, when this came out, it was like, oh fuck, how dare you? I mean, I was no Elvis fan by 1987, but it's like, how the fuck dare you? Yeah. But now, like you, David, I look back on it and go, N- no, this is this is all right. This is this is a, a worthy number one. Yeah, I can see they brought that shit into your parlour
1: room, hadn't they? i you know, mm. I just didn't see it looking like that. Yeah, yeah that,
3: that's I would understand that is that that is. That is difficult when, uh, I think everybody's got a song that is sacred to them and it's like where any fucker covers it, Mm. it's just like, fuck you, get out of my house. Um, so I, I totally, totally understand that. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that I heard this before I ever heard the original. Right. Uh, This would have been the first time I heard this song and I probably thought it was, you know, Mm. at this time I probably thought it was, it was theirs, but, um. Yeah, I mean, I love it. I mean, I, I love the Pet Shop Boys, always have done. Um, I've never, I mean, I never found them arch. Mm. I never found them aloof. I've, i found them very warm and very practiced and sort of, but without ever being stiff and without ever being removed in that way or, or having any sort of deep, do, deep do really down long.
1: warm. Yeah.
3: It is kind of startling, like how compressed it is. It is like a toasted sandwich. If you know, like when you get a massive, massive mm. bulging sandwich and then you iron it in a, in a brevel and it's like, how, how the hell? Has all of that gone mm. gone so flat? But you know, but perfectly, you know, it's done. It's done so well. It's kind of this sort of steamrolled horn section, and it, but it, it's it's great. It's this very sort of melancholy, wistful, big tune, and they've they mm. turned it into a kind of pounding disco lament. Yeah, and um, it, it's a really good performance. It's kind of surprisingly good I know I always talk about whether people seem comfortable or uncomfortable but he's uh, Neil is um, you know incredibly comfortable he's acting out the song without it being cringy whatsoever you know and he's so he's looking directly mm. down the camera which you know obviously is is a that's a hard thing to pull off but he's he's like yeah. smoldering down the camera and I was mm. like I never thought of, of he's so unassuming that it's it's almost a little bit it's almost a bit odd but you know I never realized he's got actually Neil lovely eyes you've got there he's kind of given it you know mm. he's he's really he's really working it And I was like how how interesting I don't remember I don't remember him being this much of a pop star in this way you know mm. there's all these little rueful expressions and kind of sighing and sort of shaking his head and then and then doing a little smirk mm. and kind of falling out of character and going back into it again and you know at one point mm. he, he bops himself mm. in the head like oh little things I should have said and done bop with the heel of his hand and it's just really charming yeah. And of course, Chris there behind him, just, you know, in a, in a bobble hat and a sweater, just kind of doing what he yeah. does. I mean, it's, it's funny, like, he's, he's, he's kind of like Gromit out of Wallace and Gromit, isn't he? He's just very sturdy and reliable and, and totally, totally
2: deadpan. Covering Elvis songs, this was you're beginning to, you know, people were beginning to approach Elvis songs by this time. We were only a couple of years removed from Suspicious Minds by Fine Young Cannibals.
3: Oh. <laughs>
2: <Sorry>. <laughs> but does having this song sung by a gay man in 1987 do anything to it? <gasps>
3: He's gay. Um, <laughs> uh, does it? Um, Australian
2: as well. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Um. That's the thing is that I think at this point it was it would still be a sort of quietly, very subtly subversive thing without without it being disrespectful. Yeah. It's not kind of you know turning over the 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 tables and smashing shit up it's just like eh. but it's like boy george mm. doing um Teddy bear and are you Lonesome tonight so boy george on this on this thing wandering around a kind of uh the the staging of this sorry just to go back to the 1987 Elvis uh, special thing um the staging of it was was amazing that was it was really weird it was uh so he's in like a diner and there's loads of kind of extras standing around as if they're dancing but they've sort of frozen and it's kind of and he's mm. wandering around doing the spoken bit and kinda of walking right up to them and it's They're all scared
2: like, Oh fucking
3: boy George is
2: on drugs. Oh no,
3: oh my god. You know, also look at him, is he a man, is he a woman? I'm so confused. Oh, um, this is a
2: super art.
3: Uh, but yeah, I mean he's that he's got he's got like twelve inches of makeup on his face as he would at that time and, and kinda of red lippy on his teeth. Mm. And he looks kind of a fright but he sounds beautiful. And he's got these great sad eyes and he's taking it really seriously. I don't think it, yeah, I don't think it's a kind of disrespectful thing. Like, yeah, we're going to take this very, very heterosexual thing and claim it, claim it for the gays. But I Mm. think,
2: yeah, it's good. It can only be a good thing, right? Well, because the thing is, round about this time, any song sung by a gay man that isn't totally 100% happy, you know, people go, oh, it must be about AIDS or something like that. (laughs) I mean, that's weird, that, actually,
1: because obviously AIDS was uppermost in people's minds in 1987. Mm. It really, really was coming through as a kind of, you know, major issue that people were trying to engage with, this kind of level. And, and yeah, I don't recall anybody actually making that particular connection i mean i may not have been paying enough attention but Mm. um um i just think of it as a sort of standalone yeah uh, yeah an appropriation of a kind of rock standard and giving it the full sort of high energy treatment um Mm. but you know creating something actually that is i would definitely acknowledge is is actually immaculate Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Quickly, quickly, we haven't got long. Please listen to the all-new Angela Sandberg podcast. It's a funny one. Oh, my God, it's hilarious. There's so much
0: muck in it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
4: That's O-S-E-A, Malibu.com, code GLOW.
2: So Neil Tennant's in a suit, because it's 1987. Chris Lowe, though, I mean, he, he looks like he's been parachuted in from 1998, doesn't he? <laughs> he's got a baggy sweatshirt on with a toy robot on it and, a, you know, a Benny up with Posh Boy yeah. on the front.
1: <laughs> but I, I always thought of him as very, very style conscious Chris Lowe, and I think he would Basically, mm. definitely made, and he would have understood the cliche, the trope that the suit was becoming, and said, "I'm not having that." And you know, get me the bobble mm. hat. I'm going to give the dialectical wheel of style and fashion a big spin and come up with the bobble hat.
2: Yeah, and, and his kit—you know, a, a, a keyboard setup with a green monitor on the mm. side—that's kind of quaint by 1987, mm. isn't yeah. it? It's a bit of a throwback. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, we're all conversant with Commodore 64s. You know, we've got colors on them mm. and everything. And he's got a green screen that just spits out the word pet shop. Yeah, like Amstrad, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, by this time, David, 1987's kind of like the year when people are comfortable with synthesizers now, aren't they? Absolutely. They're, They're used for... They're
1: ubiquitous, and that's what I was pointing out earlier. You know, the guitar singers are completely supplanted in this instrument. Kraftwerk um, made effectively the last album the year before 1980. You know, um, um, I actually mentioned this earlier on, ironically, but Kraftwerk made um, Mm. um, Electric Cafe in 1986, and probably didn't need to because their work was done. The electrification of pop music was complete. Um, so, yeah, I don't think synthophobia um, was really something that played on people's minds at this point at all.
2: Synths had gone from something that made a dead weird noise to mm. um, something you used instead of session musicians. Yeah,
1: and that's really make a good point there, actually, that they kind of lose the sort of otherness. If you think of, like, 1972, whatever, Virginia Plain, and then Brian Eno comes in with... You know, there's a real sense of otherness about electronics or something like that, and and that's kind of lost by 1987.
3: Yeah, The kind of retro uh, monitor kind of speaks to their care about staging and stagecraft, really, because they've now sort of blossomed unbelievably into just one of the greatest mm. live bands their shows are and they're just theater shows really but but on this huge scale and just wildly inventive mm. and they're, even their they're sort of uh, festival shows i saw them at festival number six a few years ago and uh, they've always you know that they will always do you know the big thing and the kind of mm. it's not to cover over any gaps in the songs you know all the all the um arrangements are are just just blown out into these huge things um, and they got because they were you know being being in Wales they got to the Welsh male voice choir to do Go West so at the end you know this is kind of the finale and there's yeah, like 30 of kind of bewildered Welshmen in there like 60s 70s or probably 80s all try singing Go West
2: <laughs>
3: which, which was
2: very jolly Have either of you interviewed Neil Tennant? I never did no
3: I did very briefly. Um, it was just a kind oh, man. of. Man, what was that like? Oh, uh, it was lovely. It was, it was delightful. Um, it was a very brief. So how was the gig type interview, which I, uh, I think that was in 2000, mm. so it still would have been the maker.
2: And yeah, they were, they were yeah. so sweet. Um, what was it like interviewing someone who'd already done your job before <laughs> moving on to being a pop star? Um, that would intimidate the fuck out of me. Yeah,
3: I, it didn't occur to me, actually, that, yeah, but now you say that, it's like, yeah. I think I'd be grateful God.
1: for it, actually. What? I'd be grateful because I think you, you know what we need, you
3: know. Yeah, yeah. They, they understand what it's like to be on the other side. Although people don't always, it's like, you know, every arsehole who, who honks at a learner driver was once themselves a learner driver. So, you know, people people forget these things quite easily. But no, he was absolutely... Uh, charming and, and cool. And I, I seem to recall already sort of um, sipping champagne because that's what you do. You come off stage, you, you drink champagne. Um, and, you know... Uh, of course. But Chris, Chris didn't really say anything, but I've, I've got to say he is just a beam of sunlight. And he's just... Yeah. <laughs> he's got this huge grin. He's got like a massive head-splitting grin, which is like... Cause he just makes him look like a different person. Right. Like you can't believe that that face... Kind of divides itself into that, you know, given that he never smiles on stage, which somehow just makes it even better. Like, I know now what he looks like when he smiles. Mm. That made it all worthwhile. So yeah, it was like literally a really quick sort of three minutes, five minutes or something. I would really have liked to have interviewed them properly because I think they're, mm. they're intelligent musicians who have a lot to say about things
2: so you were always on my mind would claim the christmas number one spot and they'd stay there for four weeks in total before giving way to heaven is a place on earth by belinda Carlisle. it would be the last uh non-christmassy christmas number one for three years Because we got mistletoe and wine, do they know it's Christmas, and then Saviour's Day. After knocking back demands to release the LP track King's Cross, a song which predicted the tube fire in November, for charity, they followed it up with Heart, which got to number one for three weeks in April of 1988, which would be their last number one single in the UK. Oh, by the way, the BBC countered. Uh, that August by broadcasting the Elvis Comeback special which unbelievably was the first time it had ever been shown on British television. That's fucking insane, isn't it?
1: It was 68, wasn't it? It first yeah. came out. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was like the yeah. James Bond films, you know. They weren't, things like Doctor No, which came out, what, 1962, wherever it was, that didn't appear on TV until 1974, mm. 75, that sort of time.
2: Ooh.
0: They're just excellent. Pet Shop Boys, Britain's brand
2: new number one with Always On My Mind, but will they be the Christmas number one? You can find out by watching Top of the
1: Pops on Christmas Day with Gary and with Mike Smith at two o'clock. Thanks for watching. Have yourself a fantastic Christmas and we'll leave you with the number nine record this week from Madonna. Good night. Good night. Good night.
2: Reed and Davis, surrounded by a mass of frothy perms, making them look like they're recreating the Rolling Stones video for its only rock and roll, but with real human hair instead of foam, (laughs) ruminate over the possibilities of the Pet Shop Boys being the Christmas number one. Chill the Christmas Day special once more and sign off with The Look of Love by Madonna. We've discussed Madonna so many fucking times on chart music, Jesus. <laughs> and here she is with her 19th single in three years. Mm-hmm. It's the follow-up to Causing a Commotion, which got to number four in September of this year, and is her third release from the soundtrack to Who's That Girl, which also featured tracks by Club Nouveau, Koti Munde, and Skritti Polite. The film has already been released in the UK and has died on its arse, Mm. losing $10 million at the box office. But Madonna doesn't give a toss because she's raked it back and more in her recent world tour of the same name. So we're being treated to a big long advert for the film with the assistance of her co-star Griffin Dunn and a cougar called Murray. And it's up six places this week from number 15 to number nine. Mm. Well, yeah. At least she's not wearing a suit, I suppose.
3: See, I love Madonna as well, you know, but uh, don't remember this at all. And mm. it's partly because it's, not, it's no. not very memorable. I never saw the film. Um, and uh, I'm a big fan of Desperately Seeking Susan. I think it's great. Um, and the thing is, you can tell even from the clips in this video that, um, I mean, kind of famously, the thing with Desperately Seeking Susan is that Madonna just kind of played Madonna and it worked. She's just this kind of dirty hustler. Yes. Here, I think, um, I mean, it is, it is known that she, she she just really wanted to be taken seriously as an actress, and she tried too hard. And you can see it. She just looks a bit awkward, and it's this sort of mm. kind of zany, throwback, screwball kind of comedy. And you can see even from these bits that it, yeah. it just kind of doesn't, it just doesn't work, and she's not right in it. And um, yeah. I feel kind of bad for Griffin Dunn, who is, is really good, a really kind of underrated actor mm. who was in American Wealth in London. He's uh, the the guy that buys it quite early on, and then yeah. and, uh, comes back and makes a nuisance of himself. Yeah. In an alternate universe, you know, he's basically Tom Cruise, and Tom Cruise is just some mad bastard who follows Scientology. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> you can you can just see that you know money was spent on the wrong things in the wrong ways, and Madonna mm. kind of couldn't quite yeah. bring it. Hopefully, she's realised by now that she's. Not really, she's not really an actress. She's a pop star. She's a great, great pop star. Um But, you know, not everyone can uh, do mm. all of the things. And I think this proves it. Although, yeah, like I said, this isn't, it's not like this is even a good song either. But she has an embarrassment of good songs. So, you know, one or two missteps are, are uh, forgivable.
2: In the 80s, Madonna's forgettable songs are always the slow ones, aren't they? yeah. yeah.
3: It's weird, it doesn't have a tune, which you need in, in a pop song, really. Um, and it's kind of kind of uh, yeah, it helps, pop songs it? 101. And it's kind of striking for, for dark mm-hmm. atmospherics and, and mood, but it, it
2: misses that mark, so eh. Yeah. I mean, this film came out three months ago and has already disappeared from the cinemas of the UK. I mean, that week you could have gone out to see Crocodile Dundee, A Nightmare on Elm Street... Bigfoot and the Hendersons, The Witches of Eastwick, Santa Claus the Mover, The Rescuers, Dirty Dancing, White Flesh is Weak, and Talk Dirty to Me. Wow. So, you know, we, why don't we have some clips from those films to this music? That'd be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think
1: song-wise with this, um, it's almost like they've taken the same tea bag that they brewed Who's That Girl With and sort of seem to get another cup out of it, basically. Yes. I mean, it's, yes. it's yes. very much, very sort of... In that respect, but um, this is
2: why's that girl?
1: Yeah, yeah. Why's that girl fucking doing this? Yeah, I mean, she, it's, it's amazing. She really was kind of box office anathema at this time. I mean, there's multiple mm. attempts, especially also when she was with um, Sean Penn. I agree with Sarah. Um, um, Desperately Seeking Susan is great.
3: Box office arsenic. But um, <laughs> yeah,
1: yes, I suppose yes, box office arse. But um, but then if there was the infamous Shanghai Surprise, which yeah. I think with her and Sean Penn, and I just like looking at one or two of the reviews at the time, the Lexington Herald leader called it a turkey
0: Ooh.
1: this film is bad the acting is terrible the hackneyed screenplay traffics in stereotype and yuck yuck jokes and the point is non-existent
3: Ooh.
0: and then of course who's
1: that girl which was from this year in the schenectady gazette so the
3: schenectady
1: ah okay thank you anyway the correspondent from the, the gazette Uh, felt that Who's That Girl is not simply an awful film but is positively unbearable. It's a movie without a head or a brain, a picture of such crass stupidity that it can't even make you angry. Instead, it numbs you to death with its moronic platitudes, its pretensions to comedy. It's a vanity project which is so amateurishly produced and conceived that it makes you want to cringe in shame. And then in 1989, there was Bloodhounds of Broadway, which was, I think, based on the short stories of um, Damon Runyon, which is excellent source material. Um, and it's just a two-word review shit sandwich. Actually, there isn't really. There's not even that. Actually. It just says, um, uh, produced on a budget of $4 million, the film grossed less than 44000 in its limited release. Good Lord. So, yeah, it was just difficult. I just think that there was a problem with Madonna is that she had this... Um, I think there's something kind of ruthless about her, I and mean, you saw in interviews or whatever. So it's almost like lacking a dimension, mm. um, and I think it's that perhaps that lack of dimensionality that like finds her out when she's you know on, on the old big screen. You know, she just didn't quite have the requisite presence. I mean, in contrast, to someone like Cher, you know, who obviously starts out as a pop star, and she was a great actor, you know, and mm. she had this kind of all round humanity and versatility or what have you, now, and she's able to kind of make that transition. But despite, you know, and she made quite a few films after after this did Madonna, it, um, or appeared in a few, including a James Bond, mm. at which point you think, okay, we've got look, James Bond needs a reboot, you know, if, you, if you're dragging yeah. Madonna into it. And, yes. um um, but uh, but she was really, really on the up this year. It's an interesting yeah. fact that Madonna in Britain, she made her first appearance in the UK, I think it was about, what 1983, and she just appears at Camden Palace, and she does like a little 20-minute sort of yeah. set, you know, as a showcase. No one knows who she is. Yeah. The second time she appears um, in the UK... Um, after that, is um, this year, and it's at Wembley Stadium. Um, You know, she just, like you say, these massive gigs as part of a sellout. I actually reviewed her this year at Roundhay Park in Leeds. And, uh, yeah, and it was a pretty formidable gig, you know, she was um, top of the world. I just remember that, unfortunately, my... um my Leeds kinfolk let themselves down a bit down the front because they started shouting, get your tits out for the lads. No. And he was like from the stage going, my what? In a genuine, couldn't make out what they were in. <laughs> my what? Sorry, my what? Tits out for the lads. Oh, God, Leeds uh, represent.
3: See, so sh- should have won a suit. That'll, that'll shut up. Yeah, them.
2: exactly. Yeah, yeah. They got what they asked for a few years later, though, didn't they? They did, yes. Yeah, They had to pay yeah. about 70 quid for it in a bummed up book. Oof.
3: Yeah, she called their fucking bluff, didn't she? But
2: yeah, Leeds' fault, that is. The sex book mm. is all the fault of yeah. Leeds. Yeah!
3: <laughs> yeah, there's a difference between getting your tits out for the lads and getting your tits out for yourself. Mm. Exactly. And make a shitload oh, yeah. of money. And yeah. make a fucking exhibition of yourself. And no-one's better at that than Madonna. Mm.
1: Yeah, you never got the sense that she was anything in other than complete control of, you know, her own sort of... Um, you know, vertical objectification.
2: Yeah. 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 So uh, anyway, this clip, yeah. we get to see Madonna kissing posters of Elvis and Marlon on Brando in her cell. Then she skips out of prison. Then she hooks up with the bloke in glasses. And then they ask about in the scabbier bits of New York. And then she strokes a cougar. And then she tries to be Marilyn Monroe again, and then she eventually snogs that bloke. I mean, you know, from I've not seen the film, but from this, it does look very much like shaking something wild, mm. doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm.
3: That's a good snog, though. It's a yeah. decent snog. It's a proper like big movie kiss. The actual jaw movement instead of the kind of static lip press shenanigans that you get. Mm. Um, and you know, cougars are good. But that's about the best you can say about it. Yeah, what, what there's zebras? zebras? Oh, yeah, there's a, you know, I looked up the, the, kind of the synopsis of it. And I, I kind of didn't want to know, actually. Yeah. I love the fact that she's just suddenly... The big snog scene is um, in a sort of jungle, which is clearly like in... It, it's on a roof or something. And there's suddenly... So the cougar is there. We're familiar with the cougar. And then there's suddenly a zebra. Yeah. And, oh, there's a kangaroo over there. And... Yeah, you know, what, what are you? What are you people doing?
2: I know it's yeah. the '80s, but like, come on. So the following week, while Madonna was busy getting shot of her biff, crazy, piss-headed husband, the Look of Love dropped five places to number fourteen, making this her worst-performing single in the UK since Lucky Star got to number fourteen in April of 1984. After pretty much taking 1988 off, the follow-up. Like a prayer, spent three weeks at number one in March of 1989, setting her up for a run of 18 top 10 hits on the bounce into the mid-90s. So what's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One follows up with EastEnders, where Doc Cotton and her manky side-burned husband end up in court. Uh, the obligatory Christmas tragedy this year is Mary's daughter being kidnapped by her dad and ended up in a car crash. Then it's the Tomorrow's World Christmas Quiz, A Question of Sport, The Nine O'Clock News, Rough Justice, The Criminal Court documentary series, and they round off the night with a repeat of the show jumping and a repeat of the TV version of The Untouchables. BBC Two is 10 minutes into Thinking Aloud, where assorted intellectuals discuss the idea of evil and mull over whether it's obsolete or absolute. Then Patty Coldwell presents Remember Terror, a follow up to the documentary about Terry Maidler, who died of AIDS earlier this year. Then Jim Hacker has to deal with a French diplomatic gift of a Labrador puppy in Yes Prime Minister. 40 Minutes looks at assorted Christmas parties. Then it's part four of the documentary series Charansque, The Making of a Dissident. And they close out the night with Newsnight and The Weather. ITV is running a repeat of Only When I Laugh, then it's Strike It Lucky with Michael Barrymore, the 1973 TV film Birds of Prey, where David Janssen plays a radio traffic helicopter pilot who gets tangled up with a bank job, News at Ten, a regional politics show, and they finish off with the Prince's Trust giving Dreams a Chance where they suck off Prince Charles for an hour. (laughs) Channel 4 kick on with North to Nowhere, Quest for the Pole, a documentary about an 800km race to the North Pole involving Japanese motorcyclists, an elderly skier, an Australian helicopter pilot and an American woman and some huskies. Then it's the 1970 film The Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer starring Peter Cook and John Cleese Arthur Lowe and Ronnie Corbett then Chasing a Rainbow the Emmy award winning documentary film about Josephine Baker and they finish off with Kings and Desperate Men the 1981 film about a Canadian radio talk show host who gets tangled up with a terrorist group starring Patrick McGowan and Margaret Trudeau. Tell is not kicking into christmas yet is it which is good yeah yeah so me dears what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow
3: all all the suits yeah (laughs) just just all the suits it's like is that what adulthood is going to be just suits yeah suits and cover versions
1: yeah I think in my instance, um, in the playground, uh, they've been saying, "You know, um, what are you, a twenty-five-year-old man, doing in this playground? Handing out cassettes of the Young Gods? Yes, get out of here." <laughs> um, but in the offices of Melody Maker, we'd have—I mean, we, we, we wouldn't have watched it. To be honest, we'd be all down the pub. So, um, you know.
2: But surely the Pogues, one of your bands, on top of the pops. Y-
1: yeah, I think probably—I mean, the, the Pet Shop Boys would probably have been generally the um, the most the most favoured item. Um, I don't think, with, with The Post at this time and this particular single, I mean, it has taken on a kind of life of its own um, yeah. and, and I think people have come as I say, they had the chance to sort of contemplate it year after year after year and of course, you know, this is just its first outing so um, um, it probably wouldn't really have kind of impacted at this particular time
2: And what were you buying on Saturday? Patch Up Boys
1: Yeah, I'm afraid I'm not buying any any of that stuff <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually have to go to record shops. I get it sent for free. You're anyway, not playing so the game really.
3: properly, if, David. If,
1: if if if, all right, all right. I'm oh. sorry, I'm not playing it. Okay, yeah, right. no. um, honestly, yeah. Um, if I had to, if I'd be given a free voucher and it was like you know only redeemable over this weekend, then I guess I would have bought the pet shop boys and then you know given it away to
2: someone in exchange for beer. A... And what does this episode tell us about December 1987? Well, for me. It feels like the,
1: the kind of pop is at the sort of arse end of some really kind of interesting, spiky ideas that first came to the fore in the early 80s, all to do with like a sort of white soul, white music's relationship with soul. Mm. Also ideas of like sort of retro style or whatever, you know, like you had with that ABC. I mean, they were suited and booted back with the Letters Kind of Love in 1982. But all of this has become sort of played out, over-determined, whatever, by this stage. And deadly earnest as well. It's lost yes. all of its sense of irony. I mean, the pet shop—the only real irony that left night is still resides with Pet Shop Boys and what mm. they're doing there. That's the, only, the last the of that. But what's happening is that the forces of modernity, you know, they're, they're really sort of, you know, scraping their hooves. And they're, you know, like whether it's house, whether it's hip-hop, whether it's grunge or whatever, mm. you know, the '90s are galloping around the corner, and they're going to kind of remake pop completely, and all this is just going to be sort of blasted aside, you know. Mm. And that's going to be reflected actually at the kind of superstar level. Hip hop is going to go global. Yes, um, house is going to lead to sort of acid and rave or whatever. That's going to remake the whole sort of beatscape completely. Mm. And then you know, Nirvana and people like that um, are going to dominate. All that is already beginning to happen. Yeah, but there isn't really much of a hint of the rumbling of it even Not in this at particular all. episode. If you bought your Melody Maker, though, we're all across it.
3: Mm. Yeah, it tells us that apparently no one knows it's Christmas, apart from the Pogues. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and Kim Wilde, sorry.
2: <laughs> I look at this now and I think, fucking hell, I was in the prime of my life back there, and, and this was the best the world could offer me. So, yeah, still angry about it.
3: There's a certain a certain cynicism and a certain laziness at play, yeah. even if the artists themselves aren't necessarily aware of it. I mean, there's the kind of... Um, yeah. You know, artists don't necessarily express these things themselves, and people can be completely sincere yeah. in what they're doing without realising that they are, you know, tools of, of, of the, the big, mm. ugly machine of mediocrity. So, you know,
2: I get it. Just put out a cover version. Yeah, that'll do. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of laziness, actually.
3: It's a little bit like what you get now with uh, with film, where with popular film, where there's the lament of where are the good new stories is is kind of growing, you know, it's because people do fall back into kind of, well, let's reboot this and retell that. And, you know, and it's, people are getting kind of yes. knackered by it because it's like, why aren't there good new stories, you know?
2: Yeah, this, this episode is suited and rebooted, isn't it? Ooh. <laughs> Indeed, well, things yeah. are about to get
1: booted. They're about to get booted yeah. up the arse, basically, by what's yes. going next.
2: I look at this and I just, you know, unbelievably, I think to myself, fucking hell, no wonder people fell upon the stone roses and their ilk yeah. a few years later. Absolutely,
1: Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
3: No, something needed to happen. Yeah,
1: it did, it did, definitely. But it was happening from all sides, It was from all fronts, you know, on rock, whatever, you know, the, Um but, yeah, it's just it's just mm. laziness. That they, I mean, I'm sure that Mick Hucknall would protest, you know, I worked, worked very hard on that single, you know, yeah. 20, 30, 40 takes, you know, sang my heart out. But that's not the point. It's laziness in terms of the decision-making yeah, and yeah. laziness in terms of applying sort to the idea of, like, is this necessary? Why are we doing mm. this? You know, yeah. What is the point? You know, what point are we trying to make? It's, the, it's just a complete laziness there. Mm.
3: No, it's that's a slippery yeah. slope, though, once you start going, is this really? is this artistic endeavour really necessary? Once you start down that... It's not long, depending on what mood you're in. You know, you can just end up going, fuck all this forever. There's no point to Mm. any of this. You've got to be careful. You've got to tiptoe around that kind of nihilistic pit, you know.
1: Mm. Yeah.
2: mm.
1: You do if you're (laughs) McNucknell.
2: Merry Christmas, everyone. (laughs) And that, me ducks, is the end of this episode of Chart Music. All that remains is the usual promotional flange. www.chart-music.co.uk Facebook.com slash Chart Podcast Reach us on Twitter, Chart Music T-O-T-P Money Down the G-String Patreon.com slash chartmusic Thank you very much, David Stubbs. Thank you. Ta, Sarah B. God
3: bless us everyone.
2: My name's Al Needham and I am not the young gods.
0: <laughs> Chart music. This is CBS.
2: It's music in action on Top of the Pops with Debbie Gibson, ABC, Def Leppard, Go West, and many more. The hottest performers are coming home tonight on Top of the
0: Pops. Michelob, so exceptionally smooth, the night belongs to Michelob. Michelob is sponsoring Top of the Pops. Friday, Top of the Pops rock legend Paul McCartney, Tiffany. The Alarm, and Roger. Then a knight in shining armor goes on a murderous rampage. The two gentlemen are dead of two very bizarre means. means. The Night Talker, Friday on CBS Late Night.
1: For the past 50 years or so, people have listened to their favorite artists on one of these. Often accompanied by that familiar backing group, scratch, fluff, dust, and distortion. Now we can experience the amazing sound of this Philips invention. The CD-303 compact displayer. Plugged into any system, it can play your favorite tracks in any order. Skip a track, even repeat a track. The discs are digitally recorded and played back a laser, so there's no background noise and no distortion. The new generation Philips CD-303. High fi for generations to come. Philips, sounds like we've done it again.
0: Wednesday on CBS, The Bangles, Sting... Run DMC, The Judge, John Cougar-Mellencamp, Stevie Nicks, Michael McDonald, you two, and more in an all-new holiday special. Santa Claus is rocking the town with Top of the Pop. Merry
2: Christmas and Happy New Year! A very special Christmas Wednesday.
1: Kitty Cat Supreme, high in protein.
0: Kitty
1: Cat! To satisfy a cat's appetite for life.
0: High Protein Kitty Cat! You couldn't have a fitter cat. Great.